Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with legendary jazz bassist, composer, arranger, conductor, producer, and educator, a very busy man, John Clayton. He grew up in L.A., and in 1969, at the age of 16, he enrolled in bassist Ray Brown's jazz class at UCLA. That would prove huge into his leap into jazz. He spoke to Neon Jazz about his latest 2016 CD, Soul Brothers, with the Clayton Brothers. After he graduated from Indiana University School of Music with a degree in bass performance in 75, he would go on to tour with Monty Alexander's trio. Then he spent time with the Count Basie Orchestra, the Amsterdam Philharmonic Orchestra, and in the mid-80s, he set up the Clay Hamilton Jazz Orchestra. And that has been a mainstay in his life. Soon, he will be collaborating with Quincy Jones and has played with the best around over the years, like with Diana Krall, Paul McCartney, and the great Regina Carter. Please, get to know John and dig this interview, my friends. Hey, John, thank you for taking a little time out for me today. I appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. So I'm going to go ahead and start off here, and I know you're real clear about what's going on with you on your website, but in your own words, give me kind of a snapshot of music activity that's going on with you lately. I've been working uh, working on... Some projects with Diana Call, some live performances. Also been involved with uh, Jeff Hamilton, doing things with him. Also some live performances. Uh, some teaching. Uh, the Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra was in town recently, and they kind of asked Jeff Hamilton and me to uh, help them out with some teaching, with some pedagogical things, and got to sit in on their performance. So, you know, my life is full of... Um, a variety of things. I mean, this this next week we'll be celebrating the world of Quincy Jones. So I'm kind of hitting that up. The Monterey Jazz Festival. We kind of did the same thing. We had a really great Quincy Jones celebration. That the Christian McBride, people like Hubert Laws and uh, Dave Grusin and myself were involved in. So just my life is sort of in terms of what I do all over the map, which is just the way I like it. The one thing that's kind of ever-present on your radar is your 2016 album, Soul Brothers, with the uh, Clayton Brothers. Talk to me a little bit about this album. How do you feel about it in the afterglow? I feel good about it because every album I do is an example of uh, my fantasies and my, and my expression, and in this case, our collective expression at the time. Numbers really reflect a lot of rehearsal, a lot of of editing, a lot of all the thought process and experimenting that you go through to try to clarify what it is you're you're trying to say. But I'm always, I love experiencing how the Clayton Brothers grow. Um, and for instance, if I listen back to records that we did 10 or 15 years ago and compare them to now, it's just fascinating to me to witness that. Because music is in us. It's not in the instrument, you know, and in order for that music to be a clear expression of what's going on inside of us, we have to clarify the music that is in us. Then when we do that, when we bring that to the instrument, which is the instrument works as an amplifier for the music that's inside of you, once that music comes out and locks arms with your friends and your colleagues that are making music with you, it really becomes about about expressing yourself with clarity. And since we, as people, change, the music that's inside of us changes. That's why 
most musicians, I can't think of any musician that listens to his or her own record. And that's not because we hate what we do. It's because we continue to change as people. And that change requires that we always look toward the future and toward future expressions and really kind of embracing who we are right now, not who we were a year ago or two years ago or ten years ago. We don't mind playing songs that we've done many years ago, but that's only a part of the picture. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to depart the ever-present right now and kind of go back in your history. You grew up in L.A., correct? Yes. Talk to me about your childhood and how you got not only so interested in music, but more specifically jazz. Well, I grew up in Venice, California. It was a great neighborhood, a great place to grow up. I love the beach. I love the the ocean. Uh, But also, we had a great high school music director. His name was Bill Paney, and he introduced us to a lot of great jazz. We were playing things like... Uh, music from Sketches of Spain that Miles Davis did. We were doing things from the Buddy Rich big band, uh, big band um, repertoire. So it was it was great a great exposure to jazz. Around that same time, um, I found out about a class that Ray Brown, the great bass player, was teaching at UCLA as an extension course called Workshop in Jazz Bass. I stopped my classical lessons. I just started <laughs> so I could save $65 and enroll in this course. Very proud. I took the course, and my world really opened up. I was allowed, thanks to Ray's graciousness, allowed to follow him around and uh, such after the course ended, after the semester ended, and he insisted that I start up again with classical lessons. He also got me electric bass lessons. I was playing electric bass also at the time with Carol Kay. That was sort of my environment. Uh, I, I did gigs around L.A. as a teenager, as a uh, uh, first, second-year college student. Um, I was introduced via Ray Brown to Henry Mancini and became the bass player for his new TV series, and you know all that kind of thing was going on. Uh, but then my classical teacher said, we got to get you the hell out of here. You're not practicing enough. You're not focused enough. You're doing too many gigs. You really need to learn how to play the bass. So they yeah. essentially shipped me off to Indiana. I went to Indiana University and uh, finished school there before hitting the road. So that kind of was my, my upbringing. L.A. was a great place to to grow up, hearing great jazz musicians like Benny Carter and... Quincy Jones, and, of course, Ray Brown, uh, Gerald Wiggins, Teddy Edwards, Gerald Wilson, on and on. It was just amazing music all around me. Right on. Let me ask you this. When you were growing up, were there specific albums that got you going that really kind of turned you on to jazz that were very seminal for you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The first one, before taking the Ray Brown course, a high school bass player chum of mine said, man, you've got to check out this this record I found at the Venice Library. And the Venice Library had just started um, um, loaning people, loaning out albums, uh, and not, not only books, so it was kind of new on the scene. But uh, anyway, so 
so we walked to the Vince Library, which was six doors up from where I live, and he played for me an album by Oscar Peterson called The Trio, live at the London House. On it was a song called Billy Boy. And, you know, I can still remember every note. You know, Oscar Peterson starts out with ba da ba da da ba da 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 and Ray Brown goes and I just, it blew my mind. I'd never heard bass played like that in my life. Yeah. And that's when I asked my then classical teacher if he'd ever heard of Ray Brown. And he said, yes, I have. Of course, he's a friend of mine. I forgot the letter from Ray Brown stating, Dear Mr. Siegel, would you please tell your students about a class I'm teaching at UCLA called Workshop in Jazz Bass. And that was my last classical lesson with that teacher. So that album, the trio, turned my life around. Thereafter, albums, other Oscar Peterson albums really opened me up. But other things like um, Miles Davis Records, uh, the whole the something else, Cannibal Adderley, Miles Davis, um, was one of the important records for me. Um, hearing Sam Jones, hearing Paul Chambers, uh, those were bass players that were on records, uh, you know, whole, the working, steaming, uh, cooking, working. All those records uh, really had a deep effect on me, as did things by um, Ahmed Jamal, which introduced the great Israel Crosby bass playing to me. So that was, so you know, that, that's kind of a handful of, of albums and artists. Of course, there are many more, but those are some of the beginning ones. So as you touched on with Ray Brown, you know, in 69, 16, you go and take a class at UCLA. Was it kind of a foregone conclusion that you were going to get into jazz after that point, or did you have other dreams of what you were going to do with your life? I actually thought I was going to be a chef. Uh, I was kind of looking into studying for that, but music was going on at the same time. And when I found out in my <laughs> in my naive youth that, you know, the, the the books that I was reading on on what life as a chef was all about indicated that you'd have to spend a year working on salads, for instance. And I thought, oh, yuck, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> so I was already, I was already doing music, so I just, uh, so that, that really was kind of uh, torn between that. And then when the um, chef focus kind of took a back seat and the music came forward, then right about age 18, 17, 18, I remember uh, being in a jazz club in Los Angeles called Dante's, uh, no longer around, but, but I heard a lot of great music there. And I remember seeing a couple of musicians, a couple of guys walk up to each other, obviously hadn't seen each other for all, they just hugged each other and kissed each other and... And I and I just thought this is what I want, you know. I I maybe not to kiss guys, but <laughs> but you know, for the rest of my life, I want to be in an atmosphere where you have this when loving being together and loving working together. Uh, I just that you know that that was a really important experience for me. Seeing that. <laughs> 
Yeah, absolutely. Of course, it's it's now November 9th, and that message comes to me in an even bigger way today. Absolutely. Without a doubt, it does. Let me ask you this. After you graduate from Indiana University School of Music in 75, you start touring with Monty Alexander. That had to be a huge learning curve and a great experience at that point in your life. It was. I met Monty Alexander in 1970 when he was working with Ray Brown in Los Angeles. and It was my dream before then to play with Alfred Peterson. Um, but when I heard Monty Alexander, I said, I think I want to play with that guy. Uh, he had the same, he came from the same roots as Oscar Peterson. Well, Oscar Peterson honestly was his roots. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but he had something else. He had other things. He had, he brought the Jamaican thing into to the music and so many other things. So I, that was now my new focus. Uh, and I remember we jammed together at that time and he asked me to join his trio. I said, well, I've just finished high school and I've, I've got to go to got to go to college. He said, "How long will that take?" I said, four years." And he said, "I'll wait." Um, and when I finished school at Indiana, Indiana University, and it took five years, by the way, <laughs> Monty and I had stayed in touch, and it just so happened that when I graduated, his bass player was leaving in two weeks, and he asked me do you know any good drummers? And I had met Jeff Hamilton at Indiana University, and I said, I sure do. So that's kind of how that trio was born. And we we did have a um, an intense learning curve, but we also had a lot of time together. The first year that we worked together, we were on the road 50 weeks. We loved it. it you know, we were just fresh out of school, uh, young and eager. We were now traveling the nation, traveling the world, uh, seeing the world and getting paid for it and making music. Uh, it was it was ideal. So it was, yeah, it was a wonderful um, music-making and learning situation. It still is. We still get together for reunion concerts. Well, then from there you move on to the Count Basie Orchestra, and that has to just be a continuation of that learning curve. That's true. Um I'm one of the people I neglected to mention whose records I was listening to as a youngster was Count Basie. Um, in fact, to be honest, I I connected with Count Basie's music before I connected with Duke Ellington. I mean, I really, I, in the beginning as a kid, I did not get Duke Ellington. I thought, gosh, it sounds sloppy to me. It sounds out of tune. I don't understand. You know, Why is everybody so excited? Luckily, I eventually got it, and Duke Ellington ended up having a huge impact on my music, still does. But uh, joining Count Basie, I listened to Count Basie's records, um, played along with them, um, and after two years with Monty Alexander, I knew that another one of my dreams, because one of my dreams was to play with Duke Ellington, but he died when I was in college. My other dream was to play with Count Basie. And, you know, none of us are getting any younger, nor was he. And I just thought, gosh, I wonder if there's a chance. And I called Ray Brown. I knew that Ray knew Count Basie. And the next day, I was talking to Count Basie, who luckily 
his bass player was leaving in two weeks. <laughs> and, uh, so I told Monty Alexander, he gave me his blessing, and I, I joined Count Basie's band. And, and that's really what, where a lot of changes happened in my life that would uh, kind of um, dictate the direction that I took thereafter with writing, with leading a um, jazz orchestra, with conducting, all those things stem from my two years with Count Basie. Well, and that was carried on when you were with the uh, Amsterdam Philharmonic Orchestra, and then you were an instructor at the Royal Conservatory, The Hague. What What is it about the orchestra concept that really sunk in at that point that made you want to pursue that, not only as an active participant, but as an instructor as well? Well, I've always loved classical music and there was never a divide when I was growing up. You played a certain way when you played Bach and Mozart, and you played a certain way when you were playing Monk and Dizzy Gillespie. So, you know, whatever the music required, whatever the music needed, you just did it. And it all sounded so good to me that I, you know, I wasn't hung up on on separating. So that was a great upbringing. When I moved to Holland to just sort of explore the life there, also to be with my then girlfriend, now wife. I knew there was a big scene in Holland that had a lot of jazz, a lot of classical music, a lot of a lot of music, uh, a lot of opportunities. Uh, I told a drummer friend of mine that I was hoping to play solos with uh, orchestras if the, if the occasion would ever arise. And he... Um, he said, oh, I've got friends in that world. I'll keep my ears open. So he called back one day and said, hey, I just found out there's a solo position open in the Amsterdam Philharmonic. And a solo position means principal. Uh, tr- basically translates into principal. So I do the principal chair. I meant play solos by standing in front of the orchestra and you know, playing charity and that sort of thing. But so I took the information, I thanked him, and I was already in the finals of another class competition that I had entered, and I just kind of added the audition material for the orchestra to the music I was already practicing. And um, I took the audition, and they invited me to join the orchestra. It was great, because not only could I play in the orchestra, but being there in Holland, uh, there were so many jazz opportunities that I could continue my writing, jazz, and, and playing uh, on the side. So that that was a wonderful uh, five years. It was only supposed to be two years, um, but then it was just so great I couldn't stop. Well, then you come back to California in the mid-'80s, and uh, that's when you rekindle the Clayton Brothers Quintet. That's been a long association for you. Obviously, you just released an album in 2016. What's that been like for you? What's that group specifically been like for you? You know that it's a a familial kind of um, experience and growth that really reflects what families are like. If, if I may be so forward, because uh, my brother and I are sort of the common denominators for the group, but then we have other in quotation mark family members that come in 
and we combine efforts and make music together and have a lot of fun, but then at some point they want to move on or they want a different change of environment, and that happens with our blessing, and then another family member comes in, and and, and again, that's in quotation marks because it'll be somebody like... um, Patrice Russian on piano, or Roger Kellaway on piano, or uh, Bill Cunliffe on piano, and other times it will be uh, Ron um, Esse Ron on guitar, or Emily Rimler on guitar, or you know other people, and then other times it will be, you know, it might have been Clay Jenkins on trumpet, or Gilbert Castellanos on trumpet, or you know the man who's been with us for a lot of years, Terrell Stafford on trumpet. Uh, different drummers right now, Obed Calvair, but we also work with... Uh, so anyway, the, the family <laughs> keeps expanding by having more and more of these people that we adopt come and play with us, uh, and they bring their touch and their fantasies and their sound and their ideas to our music. So that, that's really... That's kind of how I, we, my brother and I, have experienced and view the Clayton brothers. It's, it's really a cool. And now, of course, my son Gerald plays uh, piano in the group, and uh, it's really fun to have him there because he's been contributing more and more uh, compositions and arrangements to the band, and it's really great to to hear his fantasy compositionally and. Um, arrangement-wise. So it's that's kind of how we sort of moved through the years and continue to to work. Well, and you've collaborated so much over the years with Diana Krall, so Sir Paul McCartney, Regina Carter, um, all over the place. What, what has it been like to be in a collaborative environment with huge people like that in the industry? What have you learned from them? I've learned that the common denominator music brings everybody to a very humble place. You know, working with a Diana Krall, I've known her since she was 19 years old, but, you know, she's now with all of her success and stature, she, as soon as we play music together or even when we talk, she's still this wonderful human being. Paul McCartney, uh, being in the studio with him, it was really cool to to have him, to gather around him at the piano and have him play a chord. I don't know what this is called, but this is the sound I'm looking for. You know, a man who is so comfortable in his skin, musicians that are so comfortable with each other and with the music that they can admit to their areas of lack of knowledge or experience. And lean on you as you lean on them. So that's that sort of thing is is really cool and I mean to to be with a a yo-yo ma and have him ask you about some jazz phrasing, you know, something like that. so in other words, when we play music, it's like we're all kindergartners. Yeah. And Absolutely. So, all that stature stuff goes out the window. Yeah. 
Well, I want to touch a little bit on that stature. You've won a Grammy. You've had many nominations and many awards over your life. And I don't want to know what your favorite one is, but if you could think about one that surprised you, caught you off guard, which one would you say it was? All of them catch me by surprise because I don't expect them. I really yeah. don't. It's not just being modest. Uh, but the one I think that really shocked me the most was the first Grammy nomination. Uh, because I honestly, when I got it, I thought, oh, my God, someone is listening. Um, and because I really didn't think in those terms before uh, of how how your music touches people that you don't even know are being touched and in what situations you have no idea. So that was, that kind of, that, that was a slap in the face. Like, oh my, really? Oh, somebody's paying attention? Jeez. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't affect, it, it didn't and it doesn't affect how I move forward with my music. Uh, and I don't, I never, you know, I was taught by great musicians, do not do your music for reasons, for, for dishonest reasons. Make sure it's always an honest reflection of what you want to express. Yeah. And every time I veer from that, I, I get... A, a really rude awakening lesson. In other words, um, if I write something that ends up being played a lot and ends up being um, gets, has a lot of popularity, if I use those same elements since it worked the first time and try to write a second piece using those same elements, it never, I don't mean sometimes, it never, ever has the same kind of success, not only in terms of popularity, but in terms of of sounding um, like music that is 100% sincere and honest. Yeah. You know, if, if, if when you write from rules, then your music will sound like you're writing from rules. If you create music from rules or from a blueprint, then it will sound like your music is being played. But that's why, you know, you know, not to get into the Grammys too much, but all those kinds of awards. But the Grammys is the most popular one, obviously. And you'll hear people time and time say things like, how did that person win? You know, whoever heard of them or... Or, or um, that that record uh, didn't sell the way such and such a record sold, which is a complete misunderstanding of what the Grammys originally were supposed to represent, which was this is a situation where industry people can honor and acknowledge their own. Um, now people want to turn that into a popularity, sort of, they turn it into a popularity contest. Yeah. And which is unfortunate. Um, but the thing is, when you are playing music, it really has to be something that honestly comes from you. And it's 
acceptance and um, more than acceptance, the, the, the people that will be able to connect with your music, you never will be able to dictate what that will be, which yeah. is which is why you know we 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 got to throw away expectations when we do music. You can't write a song and perform a song expecting that it'll get airplay or that it'll be a hit or all that sort of thing. You can't expect that. You can yeah. try and hope for it, keep your fingers crossed. But you know what? People. The great thing about people is they are the ones who determine what honestly connects with them and what doesn't um which is great which is why which is why things like the grammys are, are uncontrollable in that regard speaking of connecting with fans what's one of the nicest things a fan has ever said to you about your music uh, uh that it touched them you know it all it, when somebody walks up and tells you that you going inside yourself and you attaching your soul to those sounds that you're making, when someone walks up and says, your music really touched me, that's it. I can go home with a smile. So let me ask you this. Everyone has a version of who you are, your family, your friends, your fans. But when you wake up in the morning and you face the world, who do you think you are? Uh, I've never framed it like that. I think who I am, who we are, is so multifaceted that it's more of a feeling than a definition. I can't definitively say, in my mind at least, this is who I am because who I am changes. It's the same shell, it's the same soul, it's the same core, uh, but all of those things that really kind of go along with it that help define who I am make me whoever, whatever I am. So that's something I, I, I think I give more thought to what I want to do and who I want to be more so yeah. than who I am. This will be a perfect segue to my final question here. You're far from being over, but you've etched quite a, a trail in the world of jazz. When the kids of the future peel back the layers of jazz history and come across your name, how would you like to be remembered? <laughs> you know what? I'm going to borrow from Count Basie um, because I want the same thing, and that is I'd like to be remembered as a nice guy. I like that. That's perfect. That's beautiful and profound in its simplicity. And on that note, John, thank you for taking some time out, opening up, giving me your stories, and most certainly for all your music. Wow. You're welcome. Thanks for being interested. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to John for his time, his honesty, and his legendary music. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store, or visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com, or for the home of Neon Jazz and everything that you could ever imagine, the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.